Hi, I'm Stuart Legere, Associate Artistic Director of Zupa. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Centre. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go. My Canadian family is all from the East Coast to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Uh, I grew up in Toronto. My family was part of the exodus out of the East Coast um, in the lead up to and the wake of the cod fishery collapse uh, to find work in, in the manufacturing sector in Ontario. But I visited Nova Scotia all the time growing up and when I finished my degree at U of T, I moved to Halifax, um, determined to, to start my career there. And that was, of course, when I learned about the Ecology Action Center. I was looking for opportunities to volunteer with an environmental organization. I was really keen to do work on climate change, um, was able to volunteer with the EAC for a few months and then got a few contracts with them and basically wormed my way in. I, I wound up getting um, a little bit of funding to to pay part of a salary for a new position. And I basically pitched to the Ecology Action Center team, Mark Butler at the time, um, and the then energy coordinator that uh, I come in as, as a climate person. And I had a little bit of money to offer and they took a chance on me. So I feel really so fortunate. It was an incredible six years at the Ecology Action Center. I learned so much and, um, and I got to work with some incredible people. So, uh, yeah, so that was it. I really kind of made my own way as many, as many people at the Ecology Action Center do created my own position and then eventually, um, was able to take over as energy coordinator and, and revive the energy action team. I guess I maybe have like a somewhat less traditional path into climate activism and, and, and environmental work. I, um, I grew up on the side of one of Canada's busiest highways in a high rise apartment building. Like I didn't even see a live raccoon until I was about 19. And, um, and so I don't have this, you know, this childhood of being out in nature, although I love the non-human world. Um, and I, and I started out as a, it was always clear that I was going to be an activist. I started out as a, um, social issues activist in Toronto, thinking about food security and, um, and protesting globalization. And, uh, and then I got sick kind of halfway through my university career studying anthropology took a little bit of time off in that time, got interested in environmental policy. And, um, and when I came back to U of T, there was a new environmental pro policy program that I took. One of the first classes in that program was a climate change science class. And that first class converted me into a climate activist. Um, so that was kind of my path. So I wound up with a, an, a, a specialization in anthropology and a minor in environmental policy. Um, and I really like, I think I use my, the tools that I got in my anthropology studies really every day in my work, because a, a lot of this work is, is thinking through 
what motivates human behavior and how, and how we work to collectively shift that behavior. Yeah, that's the question, right? So, I mean, I think an important starting point for me in my work is understanding why individuals and societies have been so stuck when it comes to climate action for the last three decades. Why have we not seen the kind of progress that we should have been seeing in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions over the course of the last 30 years? And why are we now at this crisis, such a crisis point of seeing these devastating impacts of, of climate change and global warming um, across Canada and across the world? Uh, and, and what can we learn about human behavior and how to shift that toward climate action from those decades of inaction? And a big learning for me is that, you know, the agents of the status quo, those who benefit from um, business as usual, in particular, the fossil fuel industry, have spent the last three decades engaged in a very systematic well-funded campaign to undermine climate science and undermine individuals' belief in their ability to make a difference and in their society's ability to confront the climate crisis. Um, and so part of how that has happened is oil and gas companies working to convince individuals that climate change is their fault rather than a collective problem um, that is a result of a series of structural injustices built into our social and economic systems. So saying climate change is happening because you want to drive your car, because you want to take a flight to go visit your family, um, not because we are making billions of dollars pulling fossil fuels out of the ground and selling them to whoever will buy it. Uh, and so part of what I think we need to be doing to address um, the the anxiety that people feel when they f they are put in a position of thinking that climate change is an individual problem and an individual responsibility is reminding ourselves that climate change is a collective problem that requires a communal solution. Um, so this is not, you know, it's not to say that your individual actions don't matter. If you can think about ways to reduce your reliance on energy, make sure their energy you're using is a bit cleaner, walk to work a little bit more often rather than driving, all of those things add up and they're important. But really what we need to be getting at is the restructuring of these social and economic frameworks that we're using. And I think when we start talking about things at that structural level, when we reject this notion that fossil fuel companies and the politicians in their pockets are trying, trying to shove down our throats that, that we're the problem, not them. Then we start to get to a place of collective action. Um, and it's in that community that we find our solace, right? That's where we find, I think, the greatest power and motivation for change is when we're acting together. And I think, if anything, in the last few years, we've seen um, that kind of communal energy expand so much in, in the fight for climate action um, with hundreds of thousands of people really from every walk of life getting onto the streets to demand more action on climate change. So let's think about a lesson that we learned about climate change from the COVID-19 pandemic. 
early on in the pandemic, the world shut down, right? So all of us were living probably the the cleanest uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions lives that we could have possibly been leading. We were staying in our homes. We weren't driving our cars anywhere. We weren't flying planes anywhere. Over the course of those few first months of the pandemic, we were where we were in that extreme lockdown around the world. Global emissions fell, scientists are now calculating, around 17%, which is significant, but way less than what we might have expected if indeed the cause of climate change were purely those individual actions of getting into a car and getting onto a plane, right? So what we've, what has been revealed to us is the extent to which the issue of climate change is a result of large industrial activities that for the most part, we as individuals have very little control over. And sure, some of those industrial activities are taking place because we as individuals have a demand for the services that those activities offer. But our demand is for the service. It's not for the energy that provides the service, right? We're not like, oh, we need to have our lights on in our home and therefore you must burn coal. We just want our lights on to be in our home. And so there's a whole variety of energy sources that can offer us that service. So I think it's, it is this kind of mind shift of, of breaking free of these shackles that, again, I want to say, have been intentionally put onto our imaginations of what is possible when confronting the climate crisis by the fossil fuel industry and the politicians in their pocket. Because who benefits from us thinking that climate change is all on us and therefore feeling hopeless that we can't do anything about it? About it? the agents of the status quo benefit from that kind of despair. Um, and so we need to be turning that on its head and demanding that governments do their work and regulate those industries to reduce their emissions um, and stop their operations when necessary to combat the climate crisis. Just before I came on board at the Ecology Action Center, we had seen a series of targets related to integrating energy efficiency and renewable energy into to Nova Scotia's electricity mix. Um, we'd seen a series of targets enshrined in law through the Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act, as it was then called. Uh, and so I got to be a part of the implementation of those, um, of those goals, uh, of building efficiency, what was then called Efficiency Nova Scotia, um, and, and getting it to a place where it had, you know, gone into thousands and thousands of homes across the province helped people have warmer, more comfortable homes with decreased energy bills while also taking a huge amount of the electricity load off the grid um, through, through energy conservation. I also got to be a part of rolling out the community feed-in tariff program in Nova Scotia, which saw, again, so many communities around the province getting to benefit directly from installing renewable energy projects in their community. Um, also got to have be a part of the fight against fracking in Nova Scotia. That was a huge aspect of um, the, the early years of my time at Ecology Action Centre when, you know, there were proposals on the table to crack open the ground and 
drag the natural gas out of it and there would have been major implications for water systems across the province and we would have you know blown our emissions targets out of the water simply through the the emissions released from fracking um, the fracking process, let alone whatever emissions would eventually be released when that natural gas got or when that fossil gas got burned down the line. Uh, and so with the, the Nova Scotia Fracking Resource and Action Group, our coalition No Frack, um, we were instrumental in getting a ban on fracking in Nova Scotia. And then one thing that happened, you know, more toward the end of my time at the Ecology Action Center was the rise of this really essential conversation around climate justice and something that I felt so proud of doing um, with my team at the Ecology Action Center and with the communities that we worked with was solidifying the Ecology Action Center's first statement on climate justice that had buy-in from all of the working groups of the organization and all of our networks of um, volunteers. It took us about a year and a half to finalize that climate justice statement because we wanted to do it in a way that really centered us educating ourselves and working with our communities. Um, and we wound up with a very powerful commitment to climate justice that I think then, you know, I then, once I moved on from the EAC, I got to see the ways in which the teams there were really working from that justice framework. Um, and that has, I think, been uh, a, a real, um, a real, exciting and nourishing thing to watch. Yeah, so I think a part of what was so gratifying about working at the Ecology Action Centre and also with the Atlantic Canada Sustainable Energy Coalition. So for my first couple of years at the EAC, I also coordinated ACSEC, um, the Atlantic Canada Sustainable Energy Coalition, which meant that I spent a lot of my time going across each of the four Atlantic provinces advocating for energy efficiency, renewable energy, sustainable transportation, and greenhouse gas emissions reductions. And part of what was so special that we saw in Nova Scotia was how engaged the municipalities started getting in in this conversation. So, um, you know, we saw an example of that in Halifax, where uh, the the city staff worked really hard to make it possible for the citizens of Halifax to put solar panels on their roofs and attach the cost of buying those solar panels to a loan that would sit with the home um, rather than sitting with the individual, which is a big disincentive to that kind of renewable energy investment, right? If you're going to make that investment into your home, but you're planning to move away from that home in five years, you don't want to carry that debt with you. So you might avoid it. Whereas with PACE financing, which was really modeled in Halifax um, and has now rolled out across the country, uh, that cost gets associated with the home itself through property taxes. So the next owner of the home gets to benefit from that solar project, gets to pay that loan off. And Bridgewater, I think, has a similar success story with energy efficiency, as well as a whole other host of climate and sustainability measures. They've also done some amazing thinking around how to make Bridgewater prepared for the inevitable impacts of climate change. Um, and so part of what we've seen in Bridgewater is uh, some 
some really integrated community planning. So I think they've done some incredible thinking there about how they can, you know, facilitate the residents of Bridgewater taking advantage of energy efficiency programs, um, you know, making sure to retrofit homes so that again, they're cozy, the energy bills are lower. Uh, also figuring out how to get the citizens of Bridgewater engaged in conversations about how to make that community more climate safe and more sustainable over time. And a big part of how all of that has been um, compelled in Bridgewater is through Leon DeVries, a real leader in that community who works with the municipality as their climate. Um, I don't know what his official title is, but he's their their climate specialist at the, at the municipality. And thanks to their work and the leadership that Leon has shown, um, they won this huge prize from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to honor um, their leadership as a, a sustainable municipality in Canada. So when it comes to this, this narrative of hope, um, I, you know, I think a little bit about Greta Thunberg, who said, I don't want your hope, I want you to act like your house is on fire. And, um, and I think a point that she was trying to make with that statement is, you know, we often talk about hope as if it is the flip side of despair, but I really hold true to this Joan Baez quote that says the antidote to despair, the antidote to despair is action. Um, and, 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 and so I'm not that hope not that I dismiss hope. I, I, you know, I look for hope where I can get it, but I am less interested in how an individual who's feeling despair when it comes to climate change or other ecological crises like biodiversity loss is going to find hope than how they're going to take action. So this is the thing to ask yourself, what can you do? And I think at this point, people can sometimes get a little discouraged because, you know, you're not a, maybe you're not a scientist. You don't understand the science of climate change. You're not an activist. You don't necessarily have the network of advocates, advocates to, to, you know, launch a campaign and run it yourselves. Um, but action can look like having a conversation with your family, having a conversation with members of your community about climate change or other, um, environmental issues. We often don't talk about these things with each other because we feel like we don't know enough or we don't know how to talk about it or we're afraid it might be controversial. But study after study tells us that the way we change our minds about things is by hearing from people who we know and trust and who we somehow see ourselves in. And so if you as a community member in your family, in your group of friends, in your neighborhood are opening the door to a conversation about climate change or other environmental issues, you're welcoming people to say, hey, this is important to me too. I care about it. And why that is so necessary is because we need to be talking to our politicians and demanding that they do better. And we can only have the courage to do that when we feel that um, we have the support of our community of values behind us. So climate change and other environmental issues are nonpartisan, right? While they may be political issues, they are nonpartisan issues. So 
any politician of every political stripe should have a ambitious, meaningful plan to confront climate change, biodiversity loss, and other ecological crises. And we need to be demanding that from our politicians because time and time again, we see that the major obstacle to action is political will. It's not that we don't have the right technology. It's not that the science isn't clear. We just don't have the politicians that have the courage to do what it takes. And we need to tell them that we are expecting them to do what it takes. And if they don't, there will be consequences. Um, and so it's really those points of communication, of conversation, um, that I encourage folks to, to start getting comfortable in. Talk to your elected officials, talk to your family members, talk to your community members about these issues and what can be done about them. Let's expect whatever institution we're engaging with to do its job. And it is the job of government to regulate things like industry to do what we as society need them to do. Um, and so while I, I think it is totally worthwhile to also put pressure on those businesses and industries and to get them to go as far as they can go on their own, we have to be realistic and understand that for-profit corporations are their primary objective is to make profit for their shareholders, right? And so expecting them to cut into that profit for altruistic reasons is really just unrealistic. It doesn't necessarily make them evil. That's just how they operate. And they will respond to government regulation. So we need the government re regulation to be telling them what they need to do. And I think the other... The other piece to, to throw into the mix is, you know, we're, what we're talking about here is getting at those structural injustices and inequities. So we're also, we're not just talking about like regulations to, to, to reduce emissions, right? We're also talking about how do we take this moment where we're in such a reckoning of how much, like how poorly our social and economic systems work for people on the planet. We were just on the heels of a global pandemic that has tragically killed hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. It is clear that what we are doing isn't working for us just as much as it's not working for other species or the planet. And so we need to be thinking about how we adjust those social and economic systems so that they do care for us and and um, the the world that we all share, and I think that aspect of it. So building environmental policy that isn't just about um, cleaning up this one greenhouse gas polluting facility, but is also baked into that policy about making sure the air is cleaner, making sure there are infrastructure projects that are developed in that community that put people in that community to work and make sure that they benefit from those projects, getting those, so those positive social outcomes, um, built into the policy, I think is really necessary because what we're trying to do here is actually build a better world. And I think we sometimes get locked into the like technocratic conversation about like, okay, build this wind turbine instead of this natural gas plant. Uh, when we really need to be saying, okay, how do we, make our energy systems um, work in a way that nourishes our communities rather than uh, extracting from them. I've spent a lot of time in, in Nova Scotia my whole life and have always just loved it and, and felt that it was one of my homes. Um, 
And when I, and I also, I also feel like it's a place where while there are, you know, it can be challenging, I think in Nova Scotia to find as a young person existing opportunities, um, to, to plug yourself into, uh, it is a place where you can with, with a lot of tenacity and hustle, um, carve your own path. And so a part of what drew me back and, and what ultimately led to me working at the EAC was wanting to create a space for myself where I could do the work that I wanted to do that I felt compelled by and where I knew there would be a community around me who would buy into that work and lift it up and where I would be doing a whole lot of learning. Um, and that is exactly what happened, right? The extent to which the communities across Nova Scotia that I got to interact with rallied around climate action and, and decided to take it on themselves. Um, even when governments were doing the things that they, that they should be doing, uh, was just so, yeah, I mean, inspiring is such a trite word um, to use, but it's the, it's the one that comes to mind. So, so, you know, and it's really that love of the communities of Nova Scotia that brings me back. I often say Nova Scotia is a hard place to stay forever and an impossible place to leave for good. So I'll, I'll be coming back to that province um, as much as I can for the rest of my life. And, you know, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll move back there again. 